There's one church to gather together as one assembly, one body. But that, that word, we might use it a lot. What does it mean to be blessed? You know, what typically may come to mind is that the blessings are, are good gifts that God's given us. So we may quickly think about the good things in our lives, family members and friends that we're blessed to be in relationship with. You may think about material blessings. You're blessed with the job you have. You're blessed with the house that you have. You're blessed with the financial situation. You're, in your, you're blessed to have a nice car. And, and let's be sure all those things are good gifts that come from God. It's good that we would recognize that. It's good that we would thank God for those blessings and those gifts in our lives. But are blessings more than just material things? I mean, after all, those material blessings, they come and they go. As we looked in the book of Ecclesiastes last year, we saw those blessings are but for a moment that we should not presume upon the future and how God might choose to bless us in the future. We are free to enjoy his daily gifts and to thank him for it. It's good for us to consider the earthly gifts that God has given us. It's good for us to thank him. But we've been seeing time and time again throughout our study in the book of Genesis that the greatest blessing in all of creation is knowing God. He is the greatest gift. His greatest provision of all that he created in the book of Genesis, speaking things into existence, his greatest provision was his presence given to his people. Material blessings are fleeting. Your health, your job, your family and friends, they are all temporary blessings. But the blessing of knowing God, it's a blessing in this life and in the next meaning the best is yet to come. It only gets better. We only get more of him. What grace and blessing it is to know God, to know his son, Jesus Christ, to be a recipient of the blessing of his grace and love in Jesus. Well, the story of Genesis teaches us about this blessing, to, to know God, to know this one who spoke all of creation into existence by the power of his word. To know this God is the blessing that we need. To know this God who makes promises and keeps them. To know this God who will not allow wickedness and sin to endure. To know this God who judged the world by sending the flood. To know this God who made the promise and put a rainbow in the sky as a sign of his faithfulness. The God who said he will never again destroy the world by flood. To know this God is the blessing that we must receive. It's the blessing that we need most. It's the greatest blessing to know this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's what this life is all about. And if you don't know that blessing, well, then you won't know the purpose by which God created you, his intent for your life that you would know him. Well, as we continue in the book of Genesis this morning, we see a story of God's blessing. We see this story with Noah and his three sons surviving the flood by God's grace being on the ark. We see a story of, of blessing in the midst of some really interesting circumstances at the end of Genesis chapter 9. So go ahead and turn with me now if you haven't already done so. We're going to be in Genesis 9 verses 18 through 29. If you want to use that pew Bible in front of you, take that, turn to page 7 of the pew Bible. The best way to stay engaged in the sermon is to look at God's word, track along as we make our way through this passage. And if you've come today and you don't own a Bible, uh, use that Bible this morning and take it home with you. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to learn more about who God is and what he's done in Jesus by reading 
God's Word. I'm going to read through all of Genesis 9, verses 18 through 29, as we begin our time here this morning. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. From these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Well, I was at our neighborhood pool yesterday, and a couple guys, a couple other dads sat next to me. I had the opportunity to meet a couple guys I hadn't met before. We got small talk and talking about things in life. And usually when I meet somebody, especially at the pool, I try to bring it up pretty quickly. I'm a pastor, so we can avoid any sort of awkward situations later on. And uh, so I just brought up, hey, you know, yeah, I moved down here six years ago about to be a pastor here in this neighborhood. And, uh, and I had my commentaries sitting there on my, my chair. And I said, you know, that sometimes I come out here during pool season, and I just kind of read over my commentaries and try to prepare uh, for the sermon while my kids are swimming. And I looked at him and I said, you know, I'm going through the book of Genesis right now. We're talking about Noah. And I'm curious, like, what do you guys think? Noah, the ark, like, do you think that really happened? You think it's just a fun story for kids, it's a myth, or do you think that really happened? Now, both of them said that they grew up in church. One of them grew up, said, said in the church. The other one said that he grew up Catholic, going to Catholic school. Uh, neither one of them. One, one was really clear. He did not believe Noah and the ark was true. And the other one just said, I don't know that it really matters that much. And we got to talking about it for a little bit. I said, well, you know, I'm a Christian. And so fundamentally what a Christian believes is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he died on the cross to pay for sin. He died and was buried. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. He ascended up to the right hand of the throne of God, and he's coming back, riding on the clouds on a white horse one day. I believe that. I'm a Christian. So if I believe that, believing Noah and the ark isn't like too incredible for me to believe. We talked a little bit more, and I said, you know, furthermore, Jesus, the one who got up from the dead, he said Noah was a real person. He said, he referenced the days of Noah and what happened in the flood as kind of a sign that would point to his return one day when he would come to judge humanity, not by a flood, but through his return as a lion. I said, so Jesus, I'm with him. I'm in the corner of the guy who got up from the dead. And he said this happened, and I believe it. Furthermore, I mean, you just look through the story of, of Noah, and you know, they probably had more of a conversation than they really wanted to have at this point. 
They did seem interested, just to be clear. They did seem interested. I told my kids afterward, I said, you know, most guys, they don't talk about the Bible. They're talking about the weather, or they're talking about sports, and they're talking about COVID restrictions. Uh, who talks to them about God and Jesus? No one but Christians, right? So they're probably interested to have this conversation at some level. It's intriguing to talk about that sitting around a pool. But I said, furthermore, you know, if you trace the story of Noah, it's, it's critical to the whole story of the Bible. We trace uh, from Noah to Abraham. And the New Testament traces from Abraham to Jesus. So if you take out this story and say that it's not true and that it's just a kid's story or a myth or a fable, well, then the story of the Bible doesn't hold together. So what we're looking at this morning, friends, this is history. This is God's history. It's an important piece of the history of redemption. And I know you can read this and think, what in the world is going on? We've got a 600-year-old drunk and naked man here, Noah. Like, what is happening? And don't let your eyes get drawn to just those details. The details we see here is a story of blessing and a story of cursing. We find here a story that points to Jesus. Well, as we make our way through this passage today, I want you to see two realities in a fallen world. That's our outline this morning in this passage. Two realities in a fallen world. First one in verses 18 through 23. First reality, sin is at work to keep us from righteousness. It's the first reality in a fallen world. Sin is at work to keep us from righteousness. Now we see in verses 18 through 19 that it was God's plan to repopulate the earth through Noah's three sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth. That's the plan. God saved them from his wrath and judgment in the flood. They were on the ark. They were saved from God's wrath and judgment and delivered to new life. And so Genesis 9, this was a new beginning, a new beginning in a new world, and God would grow through humanity through them again. Now, you may read verses 18 through 19 and wonder, like, why didn't Moses, the narrator of Genesis, why didn't he just stop there? And then just continue on to chapter 10, where we see the genealogy of Noah's sons. I mean, because what comes next, it's a bit odd. I mean, we see in verse 20, we read that Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Okay, that's, that's good. Nothing out of order there. It'd be just like Adam. Adam worked the ground. We've got Noah working the ground as well. He's planting a vineyard, nothing out of order. And then in verses 21 through 23, we have a bit of a shocking episode recorded for us. Noah, 600 years old, uh, other side of the ark, he gets drunk and he lays there in his tent naked. Noah, I think very clearly, very plainly, this story, original audience hearing it, Noah would not be the one promised in Genesis 3.15 to come and crush the head of the serpent. His dad longed for him to be the one in whom rest would be found. And it wouldn't be Noah. Noah was one in need of grace. He was not the one to bring saving grace. And this odd episode makes that abundantly clear. We also see here that, that while this was a new beginning in a new world, this was a world that was still fallen with people that were fallen. The curse of, of sin still at work there in this new world. Now think about a little bit of like if, if you've had a home project recently. Recently we had a little home project and painted up our living room. Been in our home for a while now, painted it up. We have four kids, it's time to paint. You get that fresh coat of agreeable gray there. It looks, looks nice, it looks clean, it smells good. It's there like the room is refreshed. 
and nice and new. And the point of houses is to be lived in. And you can see those houses being lived in for a while, and that nice, new, agreeable gray gets a scuff mark. And a soccer ball gets kicked off it. And a backpack hits it on the way out the door in the morning. I won't blame it all on my kids. Maybe I hit it too. Maybe I scuffed the wall up a little bit as well. Right? But you see kind of this, this new room and it looks nice. And then all of a sudden there starts to be wear and tear. Well, you think about this new world. Everything new. Sin and wickedness washed away by God's judgment and the flood and sending waters. A new beginning. But we see it's still a fallen world. And those signs of fallen humanity appear ever so quickly. Now to be clear here, the problem here is not that Noah planted a vineyard. The problem here is not that Noah drank wine. Wine is a good thing. Drunkenness is not. In passages of scripture like Psalm 104 verse 15, we see wine presented positively as something that's good. It says there that that wine gladdens the heart of man. We see in the New Testament that Jesus turned water into wine. So scripture presents wine as a good thing. Wine brings joy. Drunkenness does not bring joy. It brings shame, violence, immorality, dishonor to God and to others. And so the Bible gives warnings about drinking too much wine. That's what Noah did. He drank too much wine. The Bible tells us that drunkenness is sinful. It's dishonoring to God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10 tells us drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's pretty serious. That's the pattern of your life, drunkenness. You should not expect to inherit the kingdom of God. Of God. The language doesn't get much more serious than that. Galatians 5.21 lists drunkenness as one of the deeds of the flesh present in the lives of someone who does not know God. In other words, drunkenness has no place in the life of a Christian. Noah's story, it serves as a a warning, a, a warning against drunkenness. And his sin affected others. Sin always does. There's no such thing as sin with no victims. There's no such thing as sin that only affects you personally. Noah's sin affected his family. And we see a dark story unfolding from that decision. Well, I wonder, I mean, we see it here in the text, and I think it's important to ask ourselves, I wonder, Christian, what it would look like in your life to honor God with your use of alcohol. Some of you will choose to abstain. I think that is not the only way to honor God, but that is a commendable way to honor God. Some of you uh, may need to consider abstaining. Maybe it's something you need to consider doing, that drunkenness is, is too much of a temptation for you, and that you need to consider that abstention is certainly not legalism. In the hearts of those who desire to please God, it's a choice of wisdom, and perhaps you might need to consider that. The only other option you have as a Christian is to consume in moderation. You're either going to abstain or consume in moderation. And and maybe you need to ask yourself, how does your consumption of alcohol look different from anyone else in the city? I mean, drunkenness is a tremendous problem in our society. It's not limited to age. There are university students up in the university area getting drunk, and there are people in retirement communities getting drunk. It's not limited to socioeconomic status. The poor and the rich get drunk. South End, West Charlotte, South Park, people in Weddington, you name it. No matter where you're at, 
There are opportunities to give yourself over to this. And I wonder, I wonder, church family, I wonder if our generation of Christians has gotten too comfortable with this. I wonder if we've gotten too relaxed. I wonder if our struggle might not be legalism, but licentiousness and foolishness that leads to sin and immorality. And I wonder how we might need to think about how we guard ourselves and help guard each other as it pertains to this very important area of honoring God. Christian, I wonder, are you careful with how much you eat but care less with how much you drink? I wonder if you can keep the whole 30 but you're careless with how you consume alcohol. I think the message for us here, don't skip over this, brother and sister in the Lord, walk in holiness and guard yourself and one another against drunkenness. Well, consider Noah's story in chapter 6. He was the only righteous man identified in the world. The only one. He walked with God. That's what was said of him. Two people mentioned in the book of Genesis that walked with God, Enoch and Noah. It was said that he was blameless. He was one that honored God. His life was one that stood out in the midst of a corrupt world. His life stood out for centuries, for hundreds of years. He obeyed God. He obeyed God when it was hard, doing things like building an ark. He obeyed God. He endured persecution, I'm sure, in the midst of that. God saved him from the flood, delivered him safely to new life. The first thing he did when he came out of the ark was built an altar and worshiped God as he sat there on dry land. And then all of a sudden, at the end of chapter 9, we find him drunk and naked. What happened? What happened in his life? Well, while Noah was living in a new world, it was still a world marked by sin. And Noah was still a man in need of grace and forgiveness. And this scene, it serves to us as Christians as a warning against sin. Noah survived, but he had not yet arrived. He survived the flood, but he was not in his final home yet. Sin was still at work. Sin threatening to undo us. Sin that so easily entangles us. And we see it in the life of Noah. And furthermore, he was 600 when this happens. So anyone thinks that you'll just outgrow sin as you get older, the story of Noah warns us against that. You don't outgrow sin. Past faithfulness does not exempt you from present temptation. You never outgrow sin. For centuries, Noah did what was right, and at 600 years old, we see this episode. And if you talk to those who've walked with the Lord for a long time, you may realize that sometimes we find ourselves, as life goes on, giving into temptation that we fought against when we were younger. It's not like you kind of master things by the age of 25, and then the rest of your life is just spent not being tempted. I think the story of Noah would warn us in this, and Christian, older Christian, middle-aged Christian, 40-year-old Christian like me, 40-plus, persevere by God's grace in giving yourself to what, what brought you to a place of maturity in Christ. Things that God used to bring faith in your life in the past, don't grow weary of doing those things and giving yourself to that. The story serves as a warning to us about the danger of sin and the need for grace. Why, well, I wonder, Christian, what sin did you fight well when you were younger that you're now being tempted to give into. Pray for your own soul. Pray for the soul of others, for God's grace and perseverance. 
Well, chapter 9 continues on in verse 22 where we see that Noah's youngest son, Ham, he walks in the tent and he sees his father's nakedness. And you may read this story and think, all right, what exactly did Ham do wrong? Was he just in the wrong place at the wrong time and saw the wrong thing? Well, all that we clearly see in the text is that Ham saw his father and that he went and told his two brothers. We're not given a lot of detail on this specific text, right? So that, that's all that's clear there. So we need to be careful about speculating about things that happened there. Uh, to understand more of what happened there, you can put this into context, that the significance of nakedness after the fall of man, it's associated with shame. That was a shameful moment. So seeing someone naked and exposed was something of dishonor. We also know that Ham saw his father and did nothing to cover him up. Rather, he went and told his two brothers. And again, we don't know the manner in which he told because it doesn't tell us right there like what he said. Was he mocking his father or ridiculing his father? Perhaps he was. We just don't have those details there. But it does seem clear that his brothers knew what to do. They knew how to handle the situation. They didn't leave him uncovered and go tell others. And they were very careful, walking backwards, bringing in a garment, making sure, taking great care, having a concern to not lay eyes upon their father. So when we look at this, I think we can make it clear, whatever happened there in the tent with Ham, it was not just an I walked in the tent at the wrong time kind of situation. This was not innocent. In just a bit, we'll take a look at Ham's descendants, the Canaanites, and we'll see more detail about their godlessness and evil character as the Old Testament unfolds, which helps us understand that what Ham did there was certainly sinful and dishonoring to God and to his father Noah. Now, what you notice here in contrast is really the big point is a contrast being made between Ham and what Shem and Japheth did. What Ham failed to do and what Shem and Japheth actually did. Notice in verse 23 again how careful they were. They took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, walked backward, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see. So we see a lot more details there in verse 23 with what they did. They took great care, and it helps us understand what Ham failed to do. Shem and Japheth dealt with their father in a way that showed respect, in a way that honored him. They did not look at him. They did not go tell others. They covered him up. Ham exposed his father's nakedness. Shem and Japheth covered him. And the original audience who would have been hearing this story, the nation of Israel, hearing Moses narrate this story, they were familiar with the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. And they immediately would have gotten this was a failure to keep the fifth commandment. It was a violation what Ham did. They may also have connected that what God did with Adam and Eve's nakedness in the garden or when they were banished from the garden, what did he do? He covered their nakedness. And that's what we see Shem and Japheth doing. They covered their father's nakedness while Ham looked and did nothing but tell others. I think the big point of this particular section is that in a new world, at a new beginning, sin was still a threat a threat seeking to attack God's people, and it serves as a reminder to us as Christians to be on guard against sin. You've heard me say this quote before. It was something I heard years ago. I think it's important to consider this now. We need to be reminded that we will not hunger for righteousness if we are snacking on sin. We won't hunger for, for God's righteousness, for the truth of his word, for obedience, to walk near to him if we are regularly snacking 
and giving ourselves over to sin. Well, sin was still at work in this new world, but we see in verses 24 through 29, hope. Hope that while sin was at work, God is still at work. Let's look at this second reality in a fallen world. In verses 24 through 29, we see a second reality. God is at work to bless the righteous. God is at work to bless the righteous. In this section, we see that when Noah came out of his drunkenness and knew what his youngest son had done to him, and again, we're not told how he became aware, but but he did. When he became aware of what happened, he pronounced a curse in verse 25 and a blessing in verses 26 through 27. This is really the focal point of this section of Genesis. We might be drawn to the drunkenness and that episode and what was going on there, but the blessing and the curse is the theme we've seen from Genesis chapter 3 onward. That's what's meant to stand out here in this section. Blessing and curse is a central theme throughout the book of Genesis. So the, the line of the serpent and the line of the woman. That, that's really the story of the Bible going from Genesis chapter 3, 15 on. So, so through Cain came a cursed lineage. Through Seth, a blessed lineage. And we saw in chapter 5 that Noah was a descendant of Seth. Blessing came through Noah. And here we see that theme of blessing and curse appearing in this new world with Noah's three sons. So the first time we see Noah speak, and the only time in the book of Genesis, is him pronouncing a curse and a blessing. First time he speaks, a a curse. And then he speaks a blessing right after that. Look at verse 26. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. Now notice Noah's curse does not come directly to Ham but rather on his Ham's son, Canaan. Now, we've seen Canaan already mentioned in this passage. Look back at the end of verse 18. In parentheses, you read that Ham was the father of Canaan. We see later in the genealogy of Noah in chapter 10 that Canaan was Ham's youngest son. So, so Ham's lineage would be a cursed lineage. Now, this was a curse or an oracle that was also prophetic in nature, meaning it was, it was looking to the future. It was seeing in Ham's son, Canaan, and, and his descendants, the same type of character and conduct that existed in Ham. So it was kind of looking forward, saying, this is what these descendants are going to be like. A lineage of dishonor, a lineage of disrespect would characterize the Canaanites. Now again, it's important to consider the original audience here, Moses, the narrator of Genesis, He's taking the nation of Israel during their wilderness wandering, taking them through their their history. And as they first received the book of Genesis from Moses, they already had a history with the Canaanite people. The original audience would have been well acquainted with the Canaanites. They would have known them to be a pagan people who were enemies of the people of God. The Canaanites were known to be corrupt and giving themselves over to evil. Later on in the Pentateuch, Leviticus chapter 18, we see more light shed on the Canaanites. The people of God were warned in verse 3, do not do as they do in the land of Canaan. Clearly saying, like, don't be like them. Kind of like your mom warned you, don't be like those other kids in high school, right? Here's how you're to live your life. The people of God, Israel, don't be like the people in the land of Canaan. And the rest of chapter 18 of Leviticus, you can read it later, it goes on in great length 
to talk about this specific sin, how the Canaanites uncover the nakedness of their family members. It's there in Leviticus 18. It's looking back to what Ham did in Genesis chapter 9. In other words, they acted as Ham acted. What the Canaanites did, who they were, it resembled the ungodly character and the dishonor of Ham. So the curse on Ham was prophetic in nature, falling on the future enemies of God's people in Israel. And notice at the end of verse 26, the curse itself is that the Canaanites would be enslaved to their brothers. This came true in the history of Israel as eventually they would overtake Canaan. And as we read earlier in our scripture reading from Judges chapter 1, verse 30, the Canaanites became the servants of Israel. You see that as the story of the Old Testament unfold. So, so again, throughout the book of Genesis, you can trace the curse line from the serpent to Cain and now to Canaan. From Canaan's line in scripture came a lineage of pagan people. The Egyptians, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they all came from Canaan. So again, that's why we understand this is history in Genesis chapter 9. Just like the Philistines were real people in history, so were Shem and Ham and Japheth. So was this moment after the flood there. God blessed the line of Shem and cursed the line of Ham. Well, in verses 26 through 27, we see a blessing and we see a blessed lineage. Now, now while the blessed lineage goes through Shem, notice the wording in verse 26. The God of Shem is the one who's blessed. Verse 26, he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So the, the wording here shows that the blessing that Shem and his descendants would realize, they would attribute that blessing to the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. The wording reflects covenantal language. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, he's the God of Shem. The Lord he, he is their God. The descendants of Shem, in other words, would be a pay people for the praise of God and for his glory. Simply put, the blessing of the line of Shem would be knowledge of the Lord. That's their blessing, that they would know God. They would be a people for his praise and glory. And again, there is no greater blessing than knowing this God. Again, material blessings are good things. They're from God. We should thank God for our material blessings, but they are not the greatest blessings. Your job, one day you won't have it. Your health, sadly, all of us, one day, maybe sooner than we know, it will fade. Those blessings ebb and flow. Your money will one day be gone. It will belong to someone else. All of your possessions, one day, they'll either be done and they'll be in a trash heap somewhere or someone else will come to possess them. Wasn't that the story of Ecclesiastes, the lesson that we learned together in the beginning of 2020? Life is fleeting. Do not presume upon the future. Enjoy God's daily gifts, but do not build your life upon them. The blessing that you and I can know and enjoy in this life and in the next, it's the blessing of knowing God. And I wonder, Christian, how you're giving yourself to that today, tomorrow, this week. We're here today in church. That's wonderful. You get about an hour and a half. That's what we're doing now. About an hour and a half in church here together on Sunday mornings. What are you going to do with the rest of your week? How are you going to give yourself to knowing God and his word? How are you going to give yourself to encouraging others that we might walk with God together? That's the blessing of Shem. That's the blessing of all who, by God's grace, would come 
to know him. Knowing God, think of it like this, it's enjoying him. It's delighting in God and who he is. Knowing God is, is praising him. That was the blessing of the line of Shem, to know this God who created everything out of nothing, to know this God who is righteous in his wrath and judgment against sin. This God is your God, Shem. You get a relationship with him. That's the greatest blessing you could ever know and the greatest gift you could ever receive. Well, who were the ones who came out of this line of Shem? Who were the ones who would live on this blessed lineage? Well, the line of Shem, it's the Israelites. So again, the next chapter, chapter 10, you can trace the genealogy all the way from Shem to Abram, who would be named Abraham. Then in the rest of the story of Genesis, the blessing flows from Abraham to who? Isaac. To Jacob, whose name would be called Israel. And the rest of the story of Old Testament is about God's work in the descendants of Israel, God's chosen people, the people that God chose on earth to pour his blessing out on. The people of Israel came from the line of Shem. They were the blessed people who would be in a covenantal relationship with God. This God of Shem would be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This God of Shem would be the God of Israel the one proclaimed throughout the Old Testament, and the one who would reveal himself in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. At the beginning of a new world, the world being repopulated, Noah's blessing proclaimed God's plan of redeeming a people through the line of Shem. Again, from Noah's three sons, through these three lines, the whole earth would be repopulated. Shem, a a blessed lineage, Ham, a cursed lineage, and then we have Japheth. In verse 27, we read that Japheth is blessed, but he's blessed in Shem. His blessing is found in his brother Shem. Look at verse 27. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. So the blessing of Japheth being enlarged, growing, dwelling in the tents of Shem... That showed there would be a peaceful relationship between the descendants of Shem and the descendants of Japheth. They wouldn't be at war with one another like the descendants of Ham would be. The descendants of Japheth, they would settle to the north and to the west of Israel. And they're known in the rest of the Bible as the Gentiles. That's who came from Japheth. Again, this is really important stuff in your Bible history. That's how we know this is true. Because it sets the foundation for the rest of the Bible that they would be the Gentiles. Now consider this, knowing Noah's blessing, it included Japheth being blessed in Shem. In other words, the Gentiles would be blessed in Israel. You see it coming together? You see the promise here? You see the plan of redemption unfolding that the Gentiles would be blessed through Israel? This blessing of verse 27, it looked forward to the time that the tents of Shem would be opened to Japheth, to a time when the Gentiles might come in and know this God, to the new covenant when the Gentiles would be brought in and all the promises of God would belong to them as well, a time for the ingathering of the nations. This story in Genesis, don't miss it, don't don't skip over it in your Bible reading, it develops God's plan for redemption. It explains God's plan for for blessing. Notice the gospel of Jesus Christ developing here in the very beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. 
You know, in Genesis 11, we find the genealogy of Shem. His line in Genesis 11 of descendants is listed, again, ending with Abram, who become known as Abraham, the one in whom God will promise the land and descendants. From Abraham come Isaac and Jacob. The children of Jacob go to Egypt. They're enslaved. Moses is the one appointed to call God's people out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, to go and to worship God and trust him and to follow him in the wilderness and eventually forming God's people into a holy nation, the nation of Israel. And who would come from this nation of Israel, from the tribe of Judah? Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus came from the nation of Israel, ushering in the kingdom of God, dying on the cross to pay for sin, rising victoriously from the dead on the third day. His commission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew was to make disciple of who? All nations, to go and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. The death and the resurrection of Jesus was the beginning of the time for the ingathering of Gentiles. In the book of Acts, that's what we see happening. The gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We see the Gentiles come to put their faith in Jesus Christ. We see the Gentiles receive of the promised Holy Spirit of the new covenant. We see the Gentiles being grafted in, fellow partakers of the promise. We see the great mystery of the gospel, God making one people between Jew and Gentile, the church of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, the tent of Shem opened up for Japheth, which is you and me, most of us. Most of us don't come from the line of Shem in this room. Some of you might. Most of us come from the line of Japheth, or even the line of Ham, right? Because we understand that God's redemption went to all people. This is promises for you and for your children, but don't stop there. It's for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And the blessing pronounced by Noah in chapter 9 was realized ultimately in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians in the New Testament, he showed how you can be counted in this blessed lineage that has knowledge of God Almighty. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 says this, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This God of Shem, this God of Abraham, he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater blessing than knowing this God and who he is in Jesus Christ. There is no greater gift that you can receive besides who God is and what he's done in sending Jesus to die and to pay for sin, to redeem people, to live with him. There's no greater blessing to know this God, and the only way to know him is through Jesus Christ. The only way to be made right with God, forgiven of your sins, reconciled to the God who created you, is to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. And we call this good news because it's something that you can receive today. It's a blessing 
you can know today. It's a blessing you don't have to work for. In fact, you can't work for it. It's a blessing you don't deserve, which is why we call it grace. It is God's unmerited favor, blessing those who have done everything to not deserve his blessing. What kind of God is this? He's a God who forgives anyone who turns and places their trust in him. And if you've come today and you don't know Jesus, today is the day to get right with him. Today is the day to repent of your sin. Today is the day to trust in Jesus. I hope you don't leave here without talking to somebody who brought you or talked to one of our pastors at the doors. Yes, we'll be at the doors today on your way out, and we'll have one at the tent as well. So you see us there. We'd love to talk with you more about who this God is and what he's done in Jesus. And Christian, those who put their faith in Jesus, you can rejoice this morning that by God's grace, you've come to know this blessing that was given to Shem and his descendants. That moment in ancient history changed your eternal future. It changed your life now and your life in the next. You can rejoice that you've been freed from the curse of sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. The curse of sin no longer having a hold on you. Like Noah, you and I, we've been saved, but we're still in need of grace. We've been saved already, meaning we will survive God's final judgment. We will be preserved by his grace until the end, but we have not yet arrived. We're still down here on earth. We're still struggling with sin. We're still sitting and listening to God's word every week as we assemble, and then we break up and we go other places, and we try to help each other walk as Christians, and we look forward one day to that assembly that will never break up, but we're not there yet. We're in one that will end here very shortly. As we close out our service in baptism today, we have a picture of the gospel. Just as Noah was delivered from the waters of God's judgment, you can rejoice this morning if you're a Christian. I would encourage you, remember your baptism this morning. We get to baptize two individuals. Remember your baptism. That Just as Noah was delivered from the waters of God's judgment, those who trust in Jesus Christ and his death and his burial and in his resurrection from the dead We can rejoice that by his grace, we will be delivered finally from death, from sin, from Satan. We too have been raised already to walk in newness of life, and one day we will finally and fully be raised to live forever with this God. We can rejoice we've been made a part of his people, the people for his praise. In the New Testament, that's revealed as the church of Jesus Christ, the people in this age and forevermore that are a people for God's praise and his glory, a people redeemed from the curse of sin, all by God's grace, through the blood of Jesus Christ, saved by God through faith in Jesus. We can rejoice that the greatest blessing has been made ours. We've been chosen to know this God. We've been chosen to live with him. We've been chosen to walk in him. And Christian, may we seek the grace and strength we need to trust him more and to walk with him more closely. I leave you with the words of the psalmist in Psalm 73, 28. For me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Let's bow and pray.